0: Welcome to the Mycelium Network podcast, a podcast all about early stage web developers and the mentors and teachers that helped them along the way. Hey, Juan, welcome to the Mycelium Network podcast.
1: Hey, thank you for having me. Really excited to be here today. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So. Um, On another podcast I run called the Mechanical Inc. podcast, I had a really good conversation with um, Abby and Nathalie from GitHub uh, about all things open source and all the cool stuff that GitHub's doing around that space. And the education thing came up during our conversation there, and um, they were like, you should speak to Juan because he runs all this stuff and he's really (laughs) enthusiastic about this space. I was like... That would be great, and it would be a perfect fit to the Mycelium Network podcast because of what, what I do as part of this community. And hey, it happened, and here we are. So I kind of let the cat out of the bag that um, you are from GitHub, um, but without saying anything further, I'm going to give the floor to you and let you introduce yourself to everybody.
1: Yeah, we're spoiling the news for, for our listeners. Um <laughs> So my name is Juan Paulo Flores. I am a senior program manager here at the GitHub Education team, where my job is to help the students across the world to, you know, get uh, opportunities on open source, help them to build awesome communities in their campus through the GitHub Campus Experts program. And I also kinda like we do a little bit of everything but as a whole my job uh, my main role at github is to support our students on the github campus expert program which is our developer program where we teach students how to build or grow uh, welcoming communities on their campus so that they can help others get prepared before they graduate
0: yeah that's awesome it's definitely something i want to dig in a little bit more um on your Twitter, uh, a website that's a little um, Oh no heated at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I saw you shared a photo of your first two tattoos. I'm always curious about, like I don't have any myself, but I always know that when people do get these, it's usually there's usually a story behind it. So I don't know if you are open to sharing what's behind <laughs> the story behind your first two.
1: Yeah, no, it's a whole story because, of course, I I think the first two is the one that you think about the most. Um, I'm already thinking about doing like two or three more in the future, right? But the first one uh, is so so. I'm a very a very big fan of like cybernetics and uh, anime and everything that has to do about, around that. And I saw these two very cool storyboards from Ghost in the Shell, the animated version, and. Um, I, I when I saw them the first time, I was like, these drawings are just like absolutely amazing. They have really cool details about like the head of the kind of like the of 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 the shell let's call it because that's how it's called the shell right uh, which is kind of like this robotic like head with a lot of like different tubes coming out of it, and then the next scene or the next storyboard is a brain, and the brain has like different details of like parts of the brain and some, like, statistics of the brain that look very cool and very futuristic. And I saw it, like, I think a year and a half ago. And I was like, I would love to have, like, a tattoo of these two storyboards. Because also, like, something cool about storyboards is that it's kind of like this space where they're planning the scenes and they're planning the movie and what you're going to watch. So it has a little bit of that behind the scenes uh, on uh, of, of a movie that I really like. So the two storyboards that I got tattooed, one of them is, uh, it's one of the opening scenes, is the, uh, when when they're kind of like, turning the, the, the ghost, the, the robots on, and it's in a part of the movie very specific where they say like, so this is the shell, and it's like the the head of the robot, and then they talk about the, the ghost inside the shell, which is, um, the brain uh, that that you can see in, in both tattoos and, and and both are very well put together it was so hard to find out the artist that was able to draw them because it's like a lot of really small lines so you also need to be very careful in how you maintain it because if you get a ton of sun or you try to tan these lines will defuminate what they will diffuse into like each other so you need to be very careful oh. with that but uh, fun story like i I worked with uh, I got to know the, the Mosfest team and we're building a space called uh Humans Behind the Machine, which it turns out to be very <laughs> related to Ghost in a Shell. Uh so definitely I think there was some some inspiration there from from attending and, and uh you know just like supporting MOSFET.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, I, I've watched I've watched that movie a couple of times. And it's very, it's intense. And um, I I feel like I, for me personally, I feel like I have to do it in, in little bits um, because it's one <laughs> of those things like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and those things. You know, every yeah. time you read it, every time you watch it, you pick up new details about about it and you kind of start connecting to the true story behind all of it. So I, I, I really enjoy that. It's something I, I want to watch again in this new year. I kind of tend to watch it once a year. Um so, yeah, I saw it was really, really cool. But it is very detailed, the tattoo, that's for sure. It's amazing artwork yeah. and amazing artist who did that. So, yeah. Yeah. So,
1: I'm, I'm like, It's like, like my precious now. Like, I need to take care of it to avoid <laughs> the art to be destroyed. So now, uh, because yeah. now I'm in Seattle, right? Because we don't get a lot of sunlight. But if I have a or anywhere, I'm just, like, putting a ton of, like, stuff to avoid it getting, like, burned by the sun.
0: <laughs> that's interesting. I never knew that about tattoos. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, as you said, you are program manager for uh, the GitHub Education, and it. I don't know if all of these topics that I'm going to mention falls under the umbrella, um, but some of the things that I know about that that to me, in my mind, fits under this umbrella is, um, like you said, the campus experts. That's the one thing that I'm aware of. And then other things like GitHub skills, which is something relatively uh, new where you can kind of create a course material using a combination of uh, a repo and GitHub actions. And you kind of tie it all together to teach somebody some kind of skill. Um, and base that around some kind of cool automation using actions. And then there is GitHub Classroom, something that I've looked at a couple of times, but <clears throat> I think I can't quite connect what exactly it all offers. So my question to you is, can you unpack like some of uh, these different things? What does fall under the umbrella that you care? What is outside of it? And just what does all of these things offer both students, but then also educators?
1: Yeah, no, there's there's a big, there's like different audience when we talk about education, right? Like we have the students, which are the ones that I uh, work with the most. We have teachers who is kind of like, I would say the best or the most important influencers in the world because they basically teach the technologies that folks will be starting to use after they graduate, right? And uh, what I wanted to make sure our, our team does manage the manage GitHub Classroom, so uh, GitHub Classroom see look at it as a way that a teacher can improve the way that they manage their classroom. So probably when you were a student, uh, or in my case, I remember when I was a student when I had to like work with code with code and and do like projects, I would need to kind of like take a USB and probably put my code on a USB and then like, do my stuff. And then kind of like working with my team was like absolutely awful because no one knew GitHub at that time. I mean, I, I don't want to say that I'm old though, but uh, it, it, it was not one of those things that you would learn uh, in, in college to know how to work together, which I think is one of the most fundamental things that any developer needs to learn is how, how do we work together with code? Uh, it's very likely that as a developer you will work in a team, if not with other people in the internet, or in an office. So learning how to work together is one of those skills that I'm surprised it, it is not still kind of part of the curriculum. But that has a fundamental, uh, a fundamental part on on any student's uh, role or or future. Especially because it's not only about doing code, but it's also about like communicating. And it's also about like, how do you avoid or divide work? So, so it's much more complex than just like doing a git commit, git push and git pull. Right. Um, so with GitHub classroom, we try to lower the barrier of entry for both students and teachers so that a teacher, for example, if you're creating curricula, you can distribute that curricula through GitHub. So. Instead of sharing a link with a link with everyone and then students having to like fork and then it becomes a little bit messy. Um, Everyone gets everyone can click a a link and they form like teams and they have like everything set up to start working on a GitHub repository. Now, uh, this helps the teacher because the teacher can see each of the individual repositories that students are working on. Uh, And it also helps uh, the student because they would have everything that they need, like GitHub Git, Git, and GitHub, well, GitHub in specific and GitHub repositories, uh, I like to think about it as not only as code, but as content as well. So especially when we talk about learning, uh, GitHub repositories offer great uh, great pieces of content that people is not only pushing code, but they're also pushing, pushing uh, re- documentation and they're pushing like all of these automations for folks to kind of like learn online. And the same thing happens with GitHub Classroom. So GitHub Classroom not only offers teachers this control on like, hey, what's kind of like the current status of the project? They can review even like, you know, if, if you are one of those teachers that really wants to get into it, you can see, you know, who developed which part of the code base because you have Git involved. So you can even see like if, if they really work together or if it was like someone that did everything. Uh, but also for, for teachers, there's... Um, this tool that I forgot the, the, the specific name, but uh, they can set up a few GitHub actions and automations to review their submissions automatically. So that uh, once they have like well, once all the tests pass, a student is able to merge it, and and they get like the scoring for their for the work that they did. So in essence. Uh, and, and then teachers can connect these to any of the tools or platforms that they're using to manage their classroom or, you know, these these massive tools where uh, you have like the rooster of, of students and you manage like the grades and everything. There's also some automations there so that teachers uh, have to do less of the work of um, managing the technical side and they can focus more on teaching the classes that they have to. Uh, on the other side, GitHub skills, uh, it's not based on the education team, but definitely I think it's one of the coolest tools that we have because it's kind of like, in some sort of ways, is kind of a companion for you to learn uh, in this case, uh, or for the most that I've used them, how to use Git and GitHub. And it's not only kind of like, here's like this massive like pr- documentation about how to use Git and GitHub, but as you start doing very small steps, it starts to unlock the next step and, and more knowledge. So that, you know, one, one of the problems that we've learned is that teaching GitHub is complex. Like it's not easy, especially when you are getting started in your career, people throw at you like not only how to use like Git commands, but how to use a command line and how to use a terminal. And then it's how to use a new platform and everyone tries to merge everything in a very short amount of time. And with GitHub skills, you take a little bit of like more of like baby steps and and help folks start to build that learning without overwhelming them with these with all the knowledge that they might need to use the platform at its fullest. And this is something uh, I I don't remember well the name, but it's uh, the reverse pyramid, uh, the, the reverse concept pyramid, something like that. It's a it's just a lot of video games where they're teaching you how to use the game. They don't make you like fight a massive boss or anything, but first it's like this is how you walk, and this is how to jump, and this is how you hit the monster. And then they put you like a boss, right? But uh, unless you're playing like Elden Ring or something where you suffer playing, right? Uh, but the whole idea is to teach you step-by-step how to do the thing, and then uh, with GitHub skills kind of like evolving and, and showing you more steps that you can do and more stuff, the students avoid, well, the students have professional developers, uh, have a clear path on how they can master Git you know, github
0: yeah yeah no it's great I've, I've used uh github skills to just as an experiment to just basically see how i would set up a basic like this is how you would do a pull request and like have a little github skill that takes you through the steps of uh, forking, and then once you fork, you do this and that and that, and then pull request, and then it's merge, and yay, you pass to the GitHub skill. It's really, really useful. It it takes a little bit of getting used to you at the beginning, just getting an on wrap and understanding how the actions fit together and how the end of the action triggers the next step and all that kind of stuff. But once you've done it once, like doing the second one is much easier and the third one is even easier. So it's one of those things where it's like your knowledge builds on top of each other and eventually, it, you know, you'll just end up creating a whole bunch of little courses. And it's great for a bunch of stuff because, you know, you can have automated tests. So if you did the JavaScript, for example, correctly, the test tests should all pass. If they don't, then, well, you've done something wrong, so you have to go have a look. Um, and you can try and be um, as clever as possible to try and detect certain common mistakes so that you can highlight it via comment on the pull request like this is probably what you've done wrong because this specific test has failed so yeah i think there's a lot Mm -hmm. of um potential there uh but there is like a little bit of a learning curve but i think it's fair it's fair um because the value you get out of it like the learning um the time you have to take to learn it is worth that time i think but you brought up something interesting that I was going to ask later, but I might as well bring it up now. So um, <laughs> I was gonna ask you for like if you have any advice for like aspiring developers and like uh, young and old, um, just starting out in their career, but then I wanted to bring in that part where um, like exactly like you said, being a maker, a coder, a developer, technical writer, whatever it is that you're doing in tech, Writing code or writing the documentation is only one part of the job. A big part of the job is like working with others. And if you don't understand how to do that well, it can often turn a really great job into a drag because you're just struggling to work with people. Um, So I don't know, seeing that you also agree that that is something that's missing from curricula and stuff like that, what advice do you have for people starting their career? Like what is the important things to think about?
1: Yeah, no, especially with the, with the last part, uh, I have to say that for, for I'm, I'm gonna talk from a very personal space. Uh, I remember going to college and there was like these communication uh, class that you need to take, right? And everyone saw that class as just like, oh, just like a class that they put to fill up like the curricula, right? Or something that is not important because people, you know, as a developer, you only care about the technical side, right? Like you only want to code and, and be the perfect developer and unfortunately that sense, I don't know if it happens in other countries. I know it happens a lot in Mexico, especially in the university that I went to. Um, but but I agree that, you know, one of the one of the biggest challenges that I found, and this is from my experience working with students from across the world, is that every culture has its very you can you can see culture in the communication style of a person. And what I mean by that is There are some cultures that are very open to work in public and share if they are finding a bug or if they are struggling with something there are some other cultures that prefer to do that privately because they don't want to expose themselves or they don't want to get the attention from other people there are folks that like very direct communication so they they won't tell you like a very long hello how you doing i hope everything is doing great There's, like, some other cultures that do that because they really value, like, building a connection as well. So communication, I would say, is by far one of the hardest things for any developer, especially if you work in open source. Communication is essential so that you don't build on top of someone's pull request by mistake, so that you don't take an issue that probably someone else already has taken or someone or, or, you know, just, like, There's so many parts that require communication in our everyday lives that uh, I think it it needs a little bit more, um, it it should be taken a little bit more seriously, especially in a world where working with folks from the other side of the world, which is like, you and I, we're talking, you're in South Africa. I mean, Seattle is almost like across the world. So, So cultures change a lot I'm understanding that uh, there are different communication styles. I would say it helps a lot of folks to get more confident of being able to propose things, but also to understand uh, the behaviors that they see other people are doing. So definitely communication and understanding different cultures, I'd say is one of the most important skills that you can develop. And I understand that for some folks like working in a national or local company, is more than enough and that's okay, but you never know. Like I, I would even like within a country, culture is so different. So uh, I, I think it, it's still very important that, uh, you know, we dedicate some time to uh, think or, or learn how different communication styles work and uh, that will effectively help us to have a better, better uh, work and uh, healthier, communication channels with with both like the work that we do professionally, the work that we do personally, and and in general, like with with the communities as well that that we help. Um, I completely forgot what was the other question though. I I got too much into this.
0: (laughs) No, 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 no. That's perfect. Yeah, no, it was just like any, I think you've covered all the bases there. I think it's good. Um, I agree with with what you've said there. Um, With that in mind, and talking about communication, so As an educator, of course, that is key. Like, if you can't communicate well, um, you're going to have a tough time teaching people because not only do you have to um, transfer knowledge, but you have to do it in a way where you can keep their attention and... um, get their interest, make them excited about the stuff that you're learning because that's the only way that we retain knowledge is if we're actually enjoying what we're doing. So you have to think about how you communicate. Um, So along those lines, there's so many ways to teach these days. Like we touched on GitHub Classroom, for example. We touched on the automated side of it where it's your kind of – Mm, playing a game with a with against or not against with a with a machine learning thing like get up skills you know it's like you're there the human doing your thing and there's a machine telling you whether you succeeded or failed and stuff like that and then there is another thing that's i've kind of tried it and then stopped and now i'm kind of considering going back to it because of a, a talk i heard at universe get up universe and um Interestingly enough, when I was reading up about some of the stuff that you've been doing, that you've done in your past, you were actually involved with a research paper around this idea of streaming on places like Twitch, and um, specifically around audience and streamer participation at the scale of Twitch. Um, so thinking about that, and I've heard so many people say that you know Twitch can actually be a great place to teach. Um, what do you think about that, and what advice and thoughts do you have around this whole idea of using a platform that most people won't even associate with this idea Um, but do you agree that this can be a successful platform and if so do you have any like kind of advice for people that are thinking about doing this
1: yeah so Twitch, that that research it was so such in in a great time because it was like before the pandemic and I got this awesome opportunity to work with a lab uh, in West Virginia University and Carnegie Mellon to, um, they were doing something called audience participation games, which is basically, you know, when you have an audience like on Twitch, how can you involve your audience to be part of something that they're watching, like you're consuming content, but at the same time, you are building that content as well with the host. And this whole research came out of the Twitch Plays Pokemon stream, which happened like a few years ago. People had kind of like the control of um, the character on Pokemon. I don't remember which version, but basically like anyone on the audience was able to send a, a message in chat. And uh, depending on the command that they sent, the character on the video game would do something. And uh, it was a bomb of an event to have, like, Twitch plays Pokemon. Like, a, a huge community of developers came together. Uh, they normally would lose all of their items, so they would, like, release all the Pokemons and lose all the Master Balls and, and, and all the Pokeballs that they had. So it was hilarious to see it, but it was really interesting because you, you can analyze a lot of, like, human behavior uh, with these uh, with with these games. and. You know, I think there was, like, this, this item that you were not able to throw away uh, in the game. And the the audience took that as, kind of, like, the relic, like, the most important item. And they had, like, stories about the shell. It was a shell. About the shell and how the shell uh, represents the game and represents what they were there for. And it was absolutely incredible how a community was built around that. Um, I think for, for Twitch, Twitch has... Uh, it's, it's very interesting because I, I really like Twitch as a medium of learning. I think one of the challenges that Twitch has to become a learning platform is that it's very, very immediate, which means if you lose the show, you lose the content. So probably you won't be able to watch a replay around uh, Twitch. And that's what makes other platforms become so successful is that you can probably if you miss it, that's okay. But then you can watch you can watch the replay or you can watch the recording afterwards and we twitch that happens, but unfortunately like a lot of those uh pieces of content gets get lost because switch has like these three days uh bought, uh time lapse. Uh some 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 accounts will have that like unlimited though, but uh, the this typical thing is like five to thirty days. So um what we've learned through through this research uh my my job was a lot more on Like how audiences work as you grow your channel. So we define like five different clusters of channels on on Twitch, depending on on how big they were and which work and like the relationships that that we see. And it's very interesting because you know when you're a small channel, you can really create personal connections between the audience and the host. But then you have like these stadium. We call them stadium size. channels where you have like 35,000 people watching, which is incredible to think about that. And and it becomes kind of like a stadium where, you know, it stops being like Juan and, I don't know, Fer or whoever it is, and it's just like, hey, Chad, how's it going? So it's like, oh, that's interesting. When do you become Chad and when are you like someone, right? So at the end, our, our thing was much more about how do audience and hosts relate and communicate uh, during these can like growth, depending on where, where your channel was sitting on. In terms of education, uh, there's some really cool things that I've seen around, I've seen, uh, that folks are, first of all, they feel less pressure to join a live stream, especially if you have guests. So if you're a streamer and you're like, Hey, do you want to jump in and chat? People are more likely to jump in and chat than if you tell them like, Hey, I'm making this YouTube video about X, Y, Z. Do you want to jump in? They're like, Oh, but I need to prepare because it's going to be recorded and this is going to be, so, so definitely there's a little bit more planning sometimes on, on YouTube. Um, and for, for, for learning, I think Twitch still has a long way to go. I, I, I think it is a great platform for building great connections and building a community and bringing everyone together. Uh, a lot of folks are using these learning public type of streams where uh, you probably are learning some new thing and you stream yourself doing. So it's really cool because then chat kind of helps you out as well. If you're making a mistake, they will point that out in Twitch chat, but also it's a little bit, since it's not as formal as probably like the traditional education system, some folks feel more enticed to participate. So if something funny happens, people take that opportunity to, to kind of like jump into chat and, and engage. Uh, So I think it allows people to engage a little bit more and uh, really kind of like build a community around learning, learning these type of things. Now, what I see a lot of streamers are doing is that they do the live stream and then they take the recording, edit, and then publish that on other platforms so that they can have this this content evergreen. And I think that's like the best move that you can do because then you feed from like the, the other platform's audience back to Twitch and then to feed your Twitch audience back to these other platforms. So it's kind like a very good cycle that I've seen has working really good, especially if you're interested in creating like content. Uh, doing that will really help you out to grow your channel really fast.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm definitely I'm definitely trying it again, um, but I think what you've said here is interesting is maybe I, th- I think maybe it's just You have to rethink based on the platform uh, what you do, how you do things. Um, I like this idea where people think, like, because Twitch is a little ephemeral in a sense, it's more forgiving, and so people aren't so concerned about making a blunder on a live stream because they're like, ah, it's going to go away in a couple of days, it's fine. Um, Whereas (laughs) if it's something... It's going to be, you know, to stay around forever. They might be like, I have to, like you said, be like really w- well uh, prepared for this so that I, you know, don't get called out because I said something that wasn't quite accurate or whatever the case may be. Um, but then maybe maybe it's a natural evolution of the education system. Um, I mean, I think everybody acknowledges that that it's not what it should be. It's not what it can be. And maybe maybe this is one of those um, experiments that a lot of people are trying to see if, if maybe this is an evolution of education and this is what um, the the folks of nowadays gravitate toward. This is how they'd like to learn um, by kind of observing and then joining in when they feel comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. As part of like a lot of the stuff that I do, um, especially with the Mycelium Network, is I I try and... That's how I try and entice people to get involved, is by not forcing them like into the public or saying, you have to do this thing, but kind of allowing them to participate on the sidelines for as long as they need, and then starting to slowly um, maybe speak up about something and, say, and see that, oh, well, okay, wait, that wasn't that bad, and then they'll try it again, <laughs> and they'll, they'll maybe try it again. Um, so I think yeah, another, another like aspect... People- Mm, go for it.
1: Oh, sorry. I, I, I think there's a couple of really cool things that I've noticed. And the first one is, uh, for example, if you see Harvard CS50, uh, it, it's one of these like massive online courses on getting started with computer science. And the fact that it is it has like both components. It has a pre-recording component and then a live component to it as well that worked really good and it's opening, you know, like Harvard classes to everyone in the world and you can watch them yeah. whenever fits your time best. Like you don't need to be there 9am mm-hmm. and probably kind of like tired of everything that happened the day before, or probably you didn't have a good sleep. You still kind like need to be there. And, and that flexibility is welcomed by a lot of folks. And yeah. so, so the first thing is yes, uh, there's, there's a lot of new content, and especially after like the last couple of years, um, mm-hmm. the amount of content that was produced is incredible. So anyone, you can learn a ton of stuff. I think the hardest thing now is navigating the content and finding the content yes. that fits your style the most or that is kind of like quality content. The other side is that there was a lot of experimentation being done during these last two years. And one of the things that I really liked of one of our student events, they organized a series of workshops in, on Minecraft. So, uh, they brought like their entire community to Minecraft and they kind of like, everyone has their characters and it's like fun because you're playing a video game, but they're also kind of like learning and teaching and stuff. And people really like that. And I, I mean, I'm the least creative person in the world. Right. But, uh, I think the fact that people had the opportunity to experiment with new mediums and new places and new spaces uh, really helped out to find out different ways to do the things that we have always done the same way, right? Like you're now, if you want to become a software developer, software engineer, computer scientist, you're not now entirely like locked into a classroom, but there's like so many different ways in which you can build your career. And for example, open source is a great way to gather professional experience without the hustle of um, internships and finding a job. You can start learning some really good professional skills just by jumping into a repository and, and asking, how can I help to make this repository better, right? And a lot of that is what we talk, is not only the communication but also the technical side that um, you can learn through, through open source.
0: Yeah, yeah, and to that point, um, so Stormy Peters, who's also at uh, GitHub now, uh, mentioned during a talk she gave at Universe that by 2030, uh, it's estimated that we'll need around 1.6 million new developers joining the tech industry. That's a lot of new developers in, what, it's seven years remaining? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, GitHub is doing a lot of this stuff, so I'm going to jump between a couple of things here. Yeah. Um, So I think the first question I want to ask around that topic is how do you see, uh, what do you see as the role of community, such as the Mycelium Network, in helping us get to that 1.6 million? Um, But also, something that I'm very interested in is, is twofold. One is using open source as the vehicle, and two, making diversity equity and inclusion a natural part of these communities it's not this thing that you like tack on at the end to try and like oh yeah we have to be diverse it's kind of just naturally it naturally just happens because of the way you communicate maybe the platforms you choose um, i'd just love to, to to hear your thoughts on on that whole big topic
1: yeah no these are three big topics um <laughs> i think so, so for, for us, communities are fundamental at, at, at GitHub, especially with GitHub education. We do, um, we do a lot of efforts with, for example, campus experts. Um, it's not only, it's kind of like a very different type of program where you would normally see these uh, master programs in the industry where it's like, oh yeah, teach uh, XYZ like, technologies. Uh, I think with Campus Experts, what we're trying to do is to be a little bit more uh, in-depth on the role of communities, especially with student communities. And a big part of that for us is making sure, first, uh, it's making sure that the student has all the tools and resources that they need to be able to build a successful community. And it's not only, I think one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen is that a lot of folks operate a community because it's the thing that other people are doing. And, and instead of that, we wanted to make sure that the students are part of the program, that they understand that a community is a tool that you can use to get X amount of people or a certain population to a specific goal. So instead of thinking of a community as the end goal of like, let's build that, I don't know a a water community because we want everyone to know about water is like is it's a community the right tool to make sure that that happens or is it just do you, do you just need like a conference about like water and not a community and i think as developers we try to use communities as the tool that solves every one of our problems and we want to make sure that people think a little bit more about that about about their communities so the first thing that we do is we teach students uh, six different modules so they could have core skills to uh, organize or have a community. So we we first take them through a community assessment. So basically like, what's your community looking like? What's some of the struggles? What's the mission of the community? Then we make them go through diversity and inclusion, which is module number two. And it's, it, it's essentially thinking of what are some minorities in your uh, city, in your location that might be feeling left behind or left outside of these events? And then once they analyze which are these communities, how can you make sure that they feel welcomed in your community? And how can you kind of like reach out to them or where can you find them so that you can do like an intentional effort to invite them and be part of the events that you're doing? And, you know, I think I think these, these two are kind of like very core components of the program because it's not only about, you know, let's do diversity and inclusion because it's what, as you mentioned, right? Like, it's the last thing that we will care about or it's like what other people are doing, but rather it's like who are some people in my university that probably don't feel welcomed uh, to, work, to join these events? And that's very different in each country, right? Like every every city has a different set of uh, groups that might not fit that they belong in tech. So it's not something that we as kind of like program managers can say like, yeah, you need to focus on this population because they are a minority. But rather we leave that to the student and we kind of like guide them into like really understanding who these populations might be so that they can then start kind of like planning how they can reach out to them, invite them and make sure that they have um, a safe space for them to be. To, to, to attend or to be or to, you know, just, like, join the event. Then we teach them about, like, how to do workshops, how to give talks. Uh, we teach them how to uh, talk about technical technical concepts in a much more easier way so that everyone can understand. And then at the end, they do a community proposal, which is basically the culmination of everything that, um, that they have learned in the past five modules. And they make a proposal based on what they see the community struggles are, where they want the community to be, what are some diversity and inclusion um, barriers that they might find. And then they build this proposal of, okay, if I want to solve issue number one, I need to make a workshop about technology XYZ. Or if I want more people, the the most common thing that we see is that students want to um, kind of bridge the gap between industry and academia. So it's like, okay, why don't you, bring some people from the industry into your university to have like conversations about things that they're looking for, or, and some people are like, I want people to be together and get to know each other because sometimes university can be a little bit isolating. So they organize like get togethers or a hackathon or some fun project. So again, it's, it's not much about like using a community as the end goal, but rather as a tool to bring your community where you want it to be. And then events serve the same thing. We we see all the time of, like, I want to organize the biggest hackathon in the world because we want (laughs) to be the biggest one. And it's like, that's fun, though. But, like, you can have a thousand people, and if they have, like, a terrible experience, they won't come back. Why don't you focus on, like, a smaller event where everyone has an absolutely crazy great amount of time so that they come back in the future or they have something cool to take back with them after the event finishes? So it's yeah. a lot of like going, kind of like making students rethink about of all of these things that they have heard uh, and making sure that they have these deep understanding on not only what they're doing, but also how can they take their communities where they want them to be. And going mm. back to the question, because I deviated a ton, uh, the same thing happens with learning and communities, right? I know there's I think for every city that I've visited, there's someone that wants to get more people into open source, wants to to make sure that people have someone that they can reach out to, to learn or grow their skills. And I think communities can play a really good role there to, you know, like they, they understand the context, the local context, and they are gonna be better like teaching new technologies or helping folks to learn about tech and computer science. Uh, better than any company from the U.S. will be able to. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. communities are kind of like those folks that you know we, and, and this is why, for example, the Mozilla Developer Network is so important. Like you publish the, the the documentation and you publish these amazing like resources for folks, but they don't work if nobody can like teaches them locally, or they take them and they make them their own, and then they modify it a little bit so that folks in their city are able to understand them better. So you create this yes. kind of like neutral documentation and then people can as kind of like content creators, right? Like they take these things that they see it, and they make it their own, they modify it. They put, I don't know, if you're in Mexico, you put a little bit of salsa to it and then you, you share mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. to your community, right? And that's kind of like yeah, the whole yeah. goal of community. is like these people understand the struggles and their communities better than we do and they can create mm-hmm. content that is more fitting to the local context than what we would ever going to do because if you go or I go to these communities I'm probably going to teach the neutral documentation and they'll be like okay that was fun but like I didn't get it uh, and it's mm. better if someone that really you know like is building that community and that sense of belonging and that trust with the community as well is they yeah. have better better tools to give these, these new content to their communities better than we could could ever do um, yeah, yeah now in terms of I don't know if that makes sense to you I think
0: yeah, yeah, totally. No, <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, um, I think language we, plays a big role there, the right?
1: Yeah.
0: I think, I think you kind of touched on, oh, yeah. on something here. I think language plays a big role. Like when you talk about local communities um, taking content, and then making it their own. I think that one of the big things is, is just the language. Like if the, if it's only available in English, that in itself might be a barrier. I think in the beginning, you mentioned that um, like get and get up and teaching that is get up less, but um, to some extent, but uh, get more specifically uh, is often not taught at the beginning. And so um, we've actually seen that in a, in a group that you would think this is not a problem it has been the one big stumbling block. Like, for example, at the um, Write the Docs conference in Portland, um, just speaking with these technical writers that that's their job is writing technical content. When you ask them what is one of the biggest hurdles to contributing to an open source project, say for example, MDN Web Docs, they would say, "Get." <laughs> Honestly, I'm not sure how to use Git properly. I'm always scared I mess everything up. Um, I'm not 100% sure how the whole branching and pull request thing works, and that is why I really don't. Um, There are, of course, other factors as well um, that's cultural, and sometimes it's... um, us maybe not yet creating as welcoming a space as we think we are um that's also but far and far and away one of the biggest things is just this core thing and i think if you're in that community you will understand that much better than somebody looking from the outside because as a yeah. as a coder or something you might think like you know git is just it's it's not easy by no means but the basic commands you need to be productive um, aren't that hard but that is for you <laughs> who uses this yeah. every day for somebody who that is not core to doing their job it's a different story and i think that plays into the spoken language as well
1: yes language and, and i think well this is a very, uh, we can nerd about like documentation and stuff for like ages but um there's one thing that i i I met uh, Rachel Lee Neighbors, Uh, she is absolutely Mm -hmm. amazing, and we were talking about this because we were going through the same struggle of, like, we want to make sure our documentation is accessible to everyone, but it's so Mm -hmm. hard because of, like, maintaining one piece of documentation in English is hard, and then you try to translate everything into multiple languages, it becomes absolutely (laughs) unmanageable. So especially Mm. if you have a small team, right? Uh, If you have like a thousand person team, like congratulations, and it's great to hear (laughs) there's like such teams. But what she mentioned, and I think this makes a ton of sense, is that one of the best tips that she can do, first of all, yes, communities play a good, a a massive role there. Uh, But the second thing is making sure that your documentation is easily translatable by machine which means okay. a lot of folks would click the Google Chrome or kind of like Firefox uh, kind of like auto translate uh, tool to get the conditions mm-hmm. on their own language. So making mm-hmm. sure that that translation is a quality translation and making, making your documentation easily translatable by a machine plays a better role than redoing your whole documentation in a different language. Um, mm, mm. So, so there. I mean, I. This is going to be a little bit of not me thinking of me product maintaining, like thinking of product and documentation as a product. Is like maintaining languages is so hard, so expensive, and uh, it really requires a lot of resources. Uh, if you don't have the team to be able to do so, what you can do mm-hmm. is to make sure that it is translatable by a machine and that it makes sense after the machine translated translates it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think that is simply um, avoiding stuff like jargon, avoiding um, not spelling out acronyms uh, before you actually start using them? Do you think those are the kinds of things that you would do?
1: Yeah, no, totally. I think uh, there's, I mean, I'm not an expert in documentation, unfortunately. I I would love to, Um, but there's Mm -hmm. very small, and I think this has been best practices on documentation, writing for a long time that really helped out the algorithm to make the translation the best.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no I I I would love to get somebody um on here to talk about just I I spoke with Chris Mills who's been doing technical writing for a very long time, but it'd be interesting to talk to like maybe two or three technical writers on on one of these episodes and just because I think it's so critical to have good documentation, um, especially for open source projects. I think some of the most successful open source projects are successful because their documentation is so good. I knew, I know one of the reasons Vue.js got such a big um, fan base in China, as opposed to React, which the rest of the world seems to have chosen as their framework of choice, is because the documentation for Vue is available in Chinese from the get-go because Evan Yeo... Uh, is from China originally and so it was important for him to ensure that that documentation is available in Chinese because he knows how important that is to people in China. Um, So it's interesting Um, and and I mean for myself as a a developer and a maker if I want to use your tool or your framework or your whatever if your documentation is terrible then that is definitely the first place where I'm going to probably see if there's another option available um, that has good documentation so i think it's it's something that's critical to understand well and then to understand how to write this like you said so it is machine translatable in a efficient manner so it doesn't translate in a way that it no longer makes sense like you read it in spanish (laughs) and like i'm not exactly sure that's what they were trying to say here and you kind of have to switch back to the english version that's really good that's interesting i I haven't thought about it from that it, way. That's really yeah. interesting. And
1: also, like, as, as an open source maintainer, uh, making sure that your documentation is clean and understandable helps you onboard more folks into using your tools.
0: So mm-hmm. it also
1: ends up benefiting you in terms of, like, how many people are using the tools, if that's kind of, like, the goal of you, you creating, like, the project, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think for, for a lot of a lot of, like, the research that we've done, with open source projects, thinking like how, why, why is it like some sometimes hard for some folks to uh, use open source every day, is because onboarding to using like these tools sometimes is a little bit hard for, for some folks that either like they're changing their careers or uh, they're just getting started and they hear about like XYZ technology but they don't understand like the onboarding. Unfortunately, like people leave really fast. Um, and talking about open source, uh, and an open source for learning I think so so some of the research that we've done in the past is for for us I think internships are awesome but unfortunately not everyone has access to an internship close to them uh, internships are still very geolocated to the US Canada uh, and Europe um, there's some in India that are starting which I think is amazing uh, but unfortunately like outside of these regions, it's really hard to get into an internship. Either you will need to apply to the company and then see if they will offer you a visa to be able to work during the internship, which that opens like a whole different kind of worms, um, or you would need to find other ways in, in which you can gain experience. And at the end, that's like the whole goal, right? Like we want to make sure that folks get this experience of being out there and, and learning how things are done outside of the academia before they graduate because it's really valuable for them and for the industry. At the end, um, at the end something that we've learned is if just by, by supporting like, student developers we help the whole industry. Like if you, we make sure that folks before they graduate, they come with more experience and with better tools and, and better, I don't know, classes, the whole industry like levels up as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's in the long term, it's not gonna be immediate, but definitely it's worth making the investment to help the next generation to have everything that they need to be awesome. On the other side, yeah. um, I, I think open source is very democratic on the way that it works. So, uh, you know, any, as, as a student, you're able to go to any open source repository and uh, see what are some of the issues that are open and explore kind of like the technology. And what I really like about open source is that no one asks you for your resume to make a contribution. Like, it would suck if you would have to be like, oh, yeah, here's my experience on these type of projects. These are some contributions that I've made. And this is why my pull request should be the one that you accept. That would break open source at its core. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well said.
0: Well said.
1: (laughs) So... uh, Open source offers a very democratic entrance for everyone to make these contributions and start gaining more um, experience with how code is built. So, mm-hmm. and, and I love the fact that it doesn't matter where you're coming from. So we are trying to find ways in which we can help folks to kind of like contribute to, to these open source projects. Uh, a lot of that as well is that some of the challenges is navigating open source, which is mm-hmm. how can I find my issue, an issue that I can contribute to, which has been a challenge from like eternity. Uh, And not only that, but also how do I make sure, a lot of folks, especially students that are making their first open source contribution, there's a lot of imposter syndrome involved. Mm
0: -hmm. You
1: have like the code that probably, like probably the, the maintainer or the contributors are looking for, (laughs) just truly doubt themselves of like, if this is some valuable piece of code. Uh, yeah. So uh, another big problem that we've seen is uh, imposter syndrome in the industry, which I think is kind of like a, a pandemic. Everyone has like imposter syndrome at some point in their career. But when you're, mm-hmm. once again, when we talk about cultures, right? Uh, exposing your work to the world and having like an open source maintainer of a project that probably you're a big fan of, review your code. That's like challenging if it's the first time that you're making this contribution. Yeah, so mm-hmm, for um, sure. there, there's there's a few a few challenges, but from what I've seen, more companies are putting attention into the activities that folks have on GitHub. So if you're mm. making contributions to open source, that is something that will boost your resume once you're applying to kind of like formal jobs or kind of like yeah. traditional jobs. So a lot of folks and a lot of recruiters are starting to use GitHub more to verify your experience. They check out like if you have any projects there, if mm-hmm. kind of like your even even that we've heard weird stories of even if your profile looks like professionalish, which that's like a very weird thing to say. <laughs> but I can like understand what they're meaning. Um, mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like oh yeah, you don't have a really good profile picture. Um, but definitely the activity that you're doing in GitHub can essentially help you out to uh, make your resume or your profile outstand from others as you apply for jobs afterwards. And it mm-hmm. also, I, mm-hmm. I've heard a ton of stories of people getting jobs out of GitHub. So people mm-hmm. that become um, continuous contributors or uh, recurring contributors to open source projects, they get visibility from other developers and mm-hmm. I mean, if, if I can get someone that is contributing a lot to an open source project that I'm building my technology off from, I would totally yep. send them like a message of, "Hey, are you looking for a job? I've seen your I, I have full transparency of how you work, and I think this is exactly. extremely valuable. so yeah I really hope and, and it's not a hope. I think it's something that we're naturally moving towards to that first of all. Open source offers a democratic way of getting professional experience in, I would say, its fullest component. Uh, second mm-hmm, of all, mm-hmm. it can help you get a job, especially if you're getting started in tech or if it's uh, you change your careers. Uh, making open source contributions and being active in a project might bump your uh, resume or your application to a job. And third, it's a great way to meet really cool people that are doing really cool stuff, and you never know—probably one of them can. Uh, get you to your next to your next job or your first job as well,
0: yeah, that's great I one hundred percent agree yeah no, you've you've answered all my questions and then some, so that's great <laughs> <would love> that. <laughs> so um I have basically two questions left um the one is so we've talked a lot about students and um all the opportunities there are and all the things that GetUps offer, but as you've worked with all these students um And you've seen what works and what doesn't work and uh, some new trends maybe that's emerging or anything. Is there anything specific advice you have for educators? Like are there some things that you've seen that, you know, if you incorporate this into how you teach, it really works well with with students. And these are things that's kind of like, "Mm, that that doesn't kind of gel with students.
1: Yeah. No, totally. I I think educators in particular are... We, we put a lot of responsibility on their hands. Like they don't mm. only have to create a lot of the curricula, they also need to, I would say it's kind of like a performance art, right? Like you need to engage people and keep them excited about what they're learning, but also you need to teach them. So it's like, yes. it's not only kind of like watching a TV show on, on whatever platform, but it's also, how do you make sure that people really kind of like understand what I'm talking about and they can take that into something useful afterwards. Um, and they also need to review and, and give comments and feedback to all the work that students are doing. So my my mm-hmm. thing with teachers is that sometimes, uh, especially for some schools that, well, I think it's like across, across multiple institutions, but teachers do a lot of work. Um, the, the best piece of advice that I would give is that they're not alone. Like there's a ton of other teachers there uh, that are looking forward to sharing what they have done. Uh, From the GitHub side, we have the GitHub campus advisors, and we have a private GitHub discussion with all the teachers. And it has been really cool because they share some of their resources. So for example, if a teacher has done an intro to algorithms and data structures course on GitHub, they will Mm -hmm. share, sometimes they will share, depending on the college, because some colleges really kind of like protect their their, uh, property but mm-hmm. some of them are very cool and they share their resources with other teachers. So if you're giving the same class, you already have the content, so you only need to, wor- to, to, to worry about the performance part of your job. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. On the other side, I think uh, there's very small things that you can do to make sure that people really uh, engage with your classroom. In our case, I know it sounds like it's not a lot, but we... With GitHub, you're able to. If, if you reach out to GitHub, please do it if you're a teacher. We would love to help you. But uh, we send like a, a swag back to teachers with Mona stickers and we well Octocat stickers. Mona is our, our mascot for folks who probably haven't heard that before. Uh, we send them like cheat sheets and a lot of other resources that they can use while they're teaching. Um, and it turns out that the impact of these small resources like the cheat sheet is by far one of the most used tool. Because you have like mm-hmm. all the git commands that probably you will be using in one single piece of paper. And it's kind of like these very small things when we support students that do a ton of impact on their on, on their experience um, managing classrooms. And yeah. uh so, so reach out to us, we would love to help. And you know, I think the most important is that you're not alone. There's a lot of other teachers that are in the same um, journey as you are, if you're just getting started, I would recommend reaching out and talking with teachers that have more experience learning from them. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's some really, some, some great resources there for teachers to take. Uh, and, yeah, I think, I think as, as a whole, you have a very important job. Like, you're preparing the next generation and uh, want to make mm-hmm. sure that you have all the tools that you need to do that the best way possible. And, um, you know, from, from stories from campus advisors, we've heard some really beautiful stories of, you know, for, we, we have helped, uh, I, I, I'm talking about Mexico a lot because I'm from Mexico, so uh, I have mm-hmm. really good kind of communication with them, but we sent kind of like a swag pack to a teacher in an indigenous school in Guerrero, <clears throat> which indigenous schools, unfortunately, are very under-resourced in the country. So, uh, and for them, like the fact that they got like the stickers and the chit-chits was like life changing for the students. Like they were very excited about the classroom afterwards. They were really engaged with with the teacher and the teacher has like, I don't know, huge round of applause to to that teacher because he he is teaching like a technology that is in another language to folks that speak in one of the multiple indigenous languages in, in the country. And they're building some absolutely amazing things. And they always send us, they send us like a photo every every quarter of like a project that they build. And you can always see like the students with like their GitHub stickers and feeling very proud of that. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's like a super heartwarming story. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, it's like the small things count a lot. I think with, with teachers and, you know, there's been a lot of movement in the last two years of how we teach. And this is mm-hmm. like the right time for it, for us, or, or what we've noticed as well, is that this is the right time to reconnect with the students. Uh, especially if you're if you have the ability to have them there in person, it's a great time to reconnect and really build these these trust relations with with students. Uh, yeah. Teaching is being a teacher is much more than just like teaching. You're like a psychologist, a therapist. You are <laughs> everything. Content creator. Uh, so you know we. I don't know. I'm just like very astonished with everything that they do.
0: Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, this was awesome. And there's so many good things shared here. I only have one closing question for you. And that is what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received?
1: Uh, I think the best piece of advice that I've received is, um, it's a, it's a great question. I think, uh, so, so I'm gonna give some context because like I was building like before I joined GitHub, I was building like a hackathon league in Mexico, and mm-hmm. it was so hard because it was when hackathons were not like a thing. Uh, so we when we went to like sponsors, our companies to sponsor us, they were like, "Oh, but what's a hackathon? Are you gonna hack the bank?" And which I I will laugh at that right now, right? But at that time it was like, okay. I... I expect that they don't know what this is all about. And it was so hard. It was so hard to uh, raise funds to do the work that we wanted to do. And a friend of mine told me that uh, uh, if it was easy, anybody would be able to make it. And it's like, you know, when when you're going through through some hardship on your job or your work or something, it's like, you know, if you're one of the few that has the ability to do it, it's because, like, it's not... It's not easy, like it's going to be challenging sometimes to, to do the work that we do. And I think that for me was like, yeah, that that makes sense. Like it's we're the first ones doing that. We're doing that at the time. Uh, people have tried in the past, but didn't work out successfully. And I was like, OK, that that do make sense. Like, um, so, yeah, I think that's that's my my best piece of, of advice.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. And that, that's for sure. Um. You can see it everywhere. Nobody wants to be the first because it's hard to be the first to do something. Yeah. Um, if, if, even if it's just a variation on what somebody else has already done, it's always hard to be the first one. Uh, you, you see it in in uh, these online conferences. Like the chat is really quiet until the first person posts the, hey, welcome, everybody. Yeah, and right? then suddenly it starts <laughs> rolling. So it's like that thing like – Everybody finds it hard to be the first. So if you're the first to do X in your community or in your country, then know it's going to be hard, but it's probably going to be worth it at the same time. So I think it's great advice and yeah, people should definitely take that to heart. Thanks yeah. so much, Juan. This was a wonderful conversation. Um, I'm so glad this happened and I'm so excited to share this with the community. Um, have a wonderful rest of your day and um, speak to you soon.
1: Talk to you all soon. Have a
0: good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mycenae Network Podcast. If you're not already, please subscribe, star, and leave a review for us in your podcatcher of choice. This helps others find us and helps us make a better podcast for you, our listeners. You can also find and follow us on Twitter at Network Mycelium and join the community on Discord. All the links are available in the show notes.